Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Tonight, we look at one of the most grotesque battlefield events of the Civil War, the Battle of Franklin in 1864, part of a campaign so filled with peculiar events that a novelist would be criticized if they tried to put these coincidences into a single book. We'll find out what happened at Franklin and before and after from Eric Jacobson, Chief Operating Officer and Historian of the Battle of Franklin Trust. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you this Wednesday evening in December 2013 from the third floor of the Brewster Building. As always, not representing the Brewster Building or the History Department here at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Not representing the Thomas Harriet College of Arts and Sciences or the University of North Carolina System or anyone, just myself. And my guest, likewise, will give his own opinions tonight, as always. Well, it is getting towards midwinter. It's pitch dark now at 7 o'clock Eastern Time here in North Carolina. And the semester is winding down. Uh, Classes ended uh, yesterday, and final exams begin tomorrow. We have, uh, today was reading day, the one-day sort of vestigial reading day. Not quite sure what the purpose of it is. they, there was a, a study week when I was at the school I went to 100 years ago when I was in college when I was a graduate assistant at Harvard University, from which I have a degree, some of you will be surprised to learn. Uh, 
the uh, we had they had their exams after the winter break, so you had an entire month to study if you had not gone to class yet. But here at East Carolina, one day get it all done. Uh, and I don't think the students use reading day just for reading. I think it's mostly sleeping day. But we go back to finals tomorrow. Uh, football is almost over for the fall. East Carolina's team suffered a crushing defeat in its last game and didn't get to go to the league championship. My truly beloved team, Michigan Wolverines, lost by one point to our hated rivals from Ohio. Uh, But all this is behind us. We now move into the bowl season, uh, the final exam season, the Christmas break season, the holiday break season, and in fact, we'll be taking a Civil War talk radio break for a few weeks. We'll be back next week. Don't go away yet. We'll be back next week, uh, December 11th, with James Oakes, uh, learning about the end of slavery. Freedom National is the name of his book that we'll be discussing. And then we'll take a break for several weeks, come back in January and January 15th with Christopher White uh, talking about Chancellor's, Chancellorsville's, Chancellorsville's Forgotten Front, the, uh, uh, the Second Battle of Fredericksburg. Uh, hopefully we'll have David Hacker, the demographer, with us in January. That's still working on that. Frank Varney, who was to have been with us last week, uh, right with his book on Grant's memoirs and the injustice he believes they do to General Rosecrans. Uh, Professor Varney had a oral surgery and couldn't talk as mellifluously as he would like, and uh, we didn't want to subject you, the listeners, to... Uh, something that sounded painful, even if it wasn't. Uh, Martin Johnson has a new book on the Gettysburg Address. He'll be with us, and lots of other folks lined up for the spring season. But in the meantime, we're still here in December talking uh, about Civil War topics. You can find out who's going to be on the show and who's been on the show from www.impedimentsofwar.org. And uh, Mark Gaffney keeps that website up to date for us. You can also buy your Christmas books there. Click on the Amazon link there and buy the books through that website. And it puts a few pennies in the coffers of our webmaster, which we can always use. You can also donate directly to the show. That's to me, which I can use to buy uh, exotic gifts for my friends and family uh, or whatever I want. It's not a tax-deductible donation, so... Nothing but my conscience limits the spending of donations to Civil War Talk Radio. But thank you all for those who have sent them uh, through this past year. Since they're not tax deductible, I actually do end up declaring them on my uh, return. So I, I count them up at the end of the year and think of all the books that they represent. It's a nice moment. Well, tonight's book, I don't have a copy of in front of me, has... Uh, I'll explain momentarily. Uh, It was uh, a a challenge to find it, but a highly worthwhile one. Uh, uh, And indeed, the the whole uh, show this evening represents sort of a challenge. I visited the battlefield at Franklin some years ago now. I'm trying to recall how far back that was. Uh, 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 Must must maybe 10 years now, uh, maybe that long. And uh, found it just a fascinating place, and I've always wanted to go back and uh, see it in more detail. And 
a listener recommended that I contact the historian at uh, Franklin Battlefield, uh, Eric Jacobson. And so I set out to do that last spring, and there was some extensive phone tag played back and forth, and we never quite got things set up. And then we did get it set up for this fall to have a conversation, but it didn't... uh, it, it didn't work out technologically. I was still getting used to the new show. I did did something wrong. Eric held up his end, and I goofed up, and we, we had to postpone the show. The uh, He has written a book about the Battle of Franklin, the campaign of Spring Hill and Franklin, that we'll be discussing this evening. And our library didn't have it, and I struggled to find it. Ended up getting it through interlibrary loan, but those loans, unlike regular faculty loans, actually have a term on them. I can take books out from the library and keep them for four years here if I want. Nobody will care much. But interlibrary loan, you have to return it. And uh, our show date came and went. I read the book, took my notes, and I had to return it. So I don't have it right here. Uh, yet with all these obstacles, I'm excited for the moment when I say, are you there? And there's a voice at the other end that will actually be in contact. Uh, Eric Jacobson, are you there? Uh, yeah, I'm here. Yes, we've done it. This is a great moment in Civil War Talk Radio history. Uh, thank you very much for your perseverance in, in staying with this uh, and, and for joining me on the show tonight. So I mentioned I had the opportunity to visit Franklin, but haven't uh, been there in a while. Uh, so you and I have not actually met. I wonder if you could uh, share some of your background to get us started tonight. Um, how, my how, background's not <clears throat> terribly interesting. Um, I was raised in Minnesota. I lived for many years in Arizona, and I moved to Tennessee, I guess, about seven or eight years ago. Um, my background was business. Um, I started a company when I was young with two other guys, Um, We built it into something that we were all very, very proud of. Um, My background really um, has helped me get into the position that I'm at, which is I'm now the chief operating officer for the Battle of Franklin Trust, which runs the Carter House in Carnton. Um, But one of my passions, one of my very um, heartfelt hobbies, um, aside from baseball, was, uh, was history. And um, I just, I fell in love with this story of Spring Hill and Franklin many years ago. And um, I started writing. Oh, I started researching, then I started writing. And, and, I, and I guess in, in the end, I, I thought this story deserved better than to have been forgotten. I believe that what had happened here was important. It certainly was important to those who were involved, but that it was important in the entire scope and history of the of the war. And so I have dedicated a, a lot of time and, and a lot of a lot of hours and a lot of years and um, to try and to try and resurrect the story that was always there. It just needed to be told. So when did you come to Tennessee to work at? Uh, the Battle of Franklin Trust, or did you move there and then discover the story? No, no, I I was aware of the story back when I was in high school, which was mm-hmm. a long time ago, uh, <laughs> uh, twenty five, almost thirty years ago. So I was aware uh, when I lived in Arizona. 
Um, I traveled here quite a lot, at least once or twice a year. And I would just spend days um, immersing myself in the story. And I was just learning about it. And then one day I decided that I was going to start writing. And eventually it just became a book. And I decided to move here. Um, I wanted to be here. I just... Mm -hmm. Tennessee is beautiful, and, you know, I wanted to be close to this, and I was fortunate enough to um, be offered a position, um, initially at Carnton, and mm -hmm. because of, luckily for me, my my prior business experience worked to my advantage, and so here we are a number of years later. So I really get to live in the best of both worlds, that work-wise I get to do what I really like, which is to run an organization, build it, make it stronger, um, grow it but also get to exist in the, in the sphere of this great story, this great history. Well, that, that's, that's the world of public history. And so many, uh, many of us who are in it uh, have that same feeling, like, wow, this, uh, they're paying me to do this? This is great. Uh, but it, and, and the ways that one gets there are always roundabout. Everyone has a unique story, a, a different way of doing it. It's not like... You know, there's some professions that you want to be a nurse, you want to be a teacher, you you take a certain set of classes, pass a certain set of exams, and get hired from a certain kind of institution. But to do what you do, uh, you know, you, you followed a, a path. Uh, everybody has his own path, I guess. Uh, let me say some, something about the book uh, that you've written about it, just for our listeners, before we go further into it. Uh, you mentioned you just started writing it. It... The title is For Cause and for Country, A Study of the Affair at Spring Hill and the Battle of Franklin. Uh, I, I will be frank and, and say that when I first came across it, I was a little concerned on a couple of counts. Um, one was the publisher. I've, I've forgotten who the publisher was. Can you remind me of that? Omore Publishing. Okay. So it, it's a, I'm guessing a local or relatively small publisher. It's not a... Correct. It's not a, not a university press. Uh, no, of course. They wanted nothing to do with the story. Well, th th that surprises me a little. The, the book is 496 pages, and my experience doing this show is that when somebody has a book on a fairly focused, narrow topic, and it's close to 500 pages, and it won't be published by a university press or a major press, it's... Not just a labor of love, but it can often be a sort of nutty obsession that goes into detail far beyond what any rational reader wants. Not that all Civil War readers are rational, including me. We all have our, our, our pet projects. But what I'm trying to say before people get the wrong impression, I think this book is great. I was really impressed by it and thought that it, it strikes a spot in between the the obsessive detail book that leads you thinking, well, I just read 500 pages of tiny details, now what? And the sort of pop history that just skims over things uh, uh, or the academic history that doesn't tell you what the fighting was like, uh, this book hits it right down the middle and uh, achieves both in, in a can lot I, of can ways. Can I tell you a funny story about that? If you, if you can do it in one... You know, let, let's not even try. Let's take a short break right now because I want to hear the whole story at once. We're almost up to our first break. 
So what we'll do is we'll stop a little early. We'll come back with uh, Eric Jacobson, Chief Operating Officer and Historian at the Battle of Franklin Trust, also the author of For Cause and for Country, A Study of the Affair at Spring Hill and the Battle of Franklin. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking today with Eric Jacobson from the Battle of Franklin Trust, also the author of For Causes and Comrades, the uh, For Cause and for Country, rather, not the McPherson book. For Cause and for Country, a study of the affair at Spring Hill and the Battle of Franklin. Uh, so I was saying how I thought this book hit hit a, a hit the target between. Uh, the 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 detail fanatic style and the academic doesn't talk about the battle style. Uh, you were going to say comment on that. Well, there, there was just it's a funny story about how the how the book was published because no one wanted it. 
um, I was rejected by six or seven university presses. Um, in fact, one of them sent a letter to me, which I have subsequently framed, and said <laughs> that they were not interested in publishing the book because Franklin was not a story that had a, a, a wide um, appeal in the Civil War community. Um, but they encouraged me to um, they encouraged me to try elsewhere. So uh, of course I did. And what happened was I found I found someone um, a small publishing company, and he was familiar with Middle Tennessee, and he read it, and he called me back and he said, "This book has to be published. Um, this is this is an incredible book." Um, and I think that, <clears throat> not the proof of whether I'm a great writer, I don't know that that's terribly relevant, but I've sold 25,000 copies of the book. And that alone speaks for, I think, the power of the story. Because it's not Gettysburg or Lincoln or Lee, the same old conventional topics, which are interesting, but this was different. And, and there, was, there was high drama playing out here in Middle Tennessee and... and and I can see just in the staying power of the uh, of the book. So that that's the funny story. I I now understand how musicians and, uh, for example, must feel when they're constantly rejected, and then you know somebody takes a chance on you, and you end up selling you know half a million copies, and you're like, yeah, well, someone yeah, believed in me because I believed mm-hmm. in it all along. Well, it is it is a a great story. It is really uh, uh, a, a dramatic one, and there is. Uh, there is still in the Civil War community uh, a, a a Virginia-centric tendency. Uh, you know that, that the battles in Tennessee and Kentucky don't get the same attention uh, that those in the, the East have. My first book on the Army of the Ohio has not sold twenty-five thousand copies, but. Uh, if it were on the Army of the Potomac or the Army of Northern Virginia, it might have come closer to that. Uh, so I, I, I hear very much what you're saying. The, the Western theater has uh, farther to, to go to get its story out. But then there are these stories that, that, uh, that people don't know as much. You, this book is not just about the Battle of Franklin, but tells the whole story, really, of Hood's last campaign, uh, at least through uh, the Battle of Franklin, uh, beginning with the, the aftermath of Atlanta when Hood takes over and, and marches north to, uh, to, to go the other way uh, to try to cut off Sherman's army. And of course, our listeners know that Sherman just says, never mind, and marches to the sea without a supply line. But it looks for a while like Hood could do some serious damage. Uh, what do you think about that? Did Hood have prospects of of going north and, and perhaps causing the momentum of the war to change in 1864? Well, there's the rub, isn't it? Um, I think people for too long have just assumed that Hood never had a chance. And I, I don't believe the facts indicate that to be the case at all. Um, and, I, and I really focused so much on Spring Hill because to understand Franklin is to understand Spring Hill. But there were certainly a lot of dynamics in play leading up to Spring Hill. Um, I'm not going to be um, so silly as to say that if Hood had been successful in taking Nashville, which is the goal, that it would have changed the outcome of the war. But could it have dragged it 
deep into 1865? Could it have, um, well, not could have, I think would have altered Sherman's plans once he gets to Savannah? I think you see a war that um, really has a, a, a much, much different conclusion. Um, and, and, and Hood would receive so much criticism. What good is it going to do to chase Sherman around Georgia? Um, what's he going to do, get in front of Sherman? Well, he had tried that. That hadn't worked. Sherman has about a 5-3 to three numerical advantage. What's he going to do, um, follow Sherman? And what, follow in Sherman's wake of devastation? There's nothing in the rear. Um, so it doesn't suit him to pursue Sherman. Um, he is pulling the end around. He is trying to draw the attention away from wherever Sherman is going. Um, and to try and drag the war out. And he comes so close. Um, and then that well, leads to Spring Hill and Franklin. So the, the Union command responds, uh, sending General Thomas, George Thomas, to, to try to slow Hood down, get in his way. And he initially gets a few units, a few divisions into Hood's path at Spring Hill, Tennessee, uh, and there you have one of the the just unbelievable stories of the war, where uh, uh, you know Hood outnumbers the the Union force that he's facing. Uh, he's got you know Schofield's men where he wants them. So the Union and he he actually cuts them off. He traps them, and it, this could be one of the biggest Union military defeats of the war unless the men were to get up and just walk right through the middle of Hood's army at night and leave. How did that happen? Oh, gosh. Um, it, it, Jerry, we, we could talk for two hours. Um, <laughs> I will say this. Hood lost the initiative in the campaign, or lost much of the initiative in early November, when he was not able to get across the Tennessee River when he had only 10,000 troops standing between him and Nashville. Um, Sherman moved far too slowly. Um, he, doesn't, he sends Thomas to Nashville, <clears throat> and he sends the 4th Corps back, but he doesn't get the 23rd Corps in the field until November 15th. If Hood had gotten across the river in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th day of November, he's only got 10,000 troops between him and Nashville, and there's only 8,000 men in Nashville. But he's, he's committed. So regardless of how slowly Sherman moves, he's committed. He begins moving north. Um, I, I tried to, with this story, which had been so laden with the murk of myth and legend, um, you know, Hood, this aggressive man, all he ever did was launch frontal assault. John Bell Hood launched one frontal assault in his entire career. That was at Franklin. Um, Hood came from the Lee and Jackson School of Warfare. It was aggressive offensive movements. You got after the enemy every chance you got. You didn't keep. You didn't let the pressure up. And so he's trying to flank Schofield. And John Schofield has been placed in command of the roughly 25,000 U.S. troops. And Schofield's just stalling. I mean, he's just trying to buy time for Thomas to cobble together reinforcements in Nashville. There's help on the way from Missouri. So Hood knows the window of opportunity is narrow, and he's got to push it. And Schofield retreats, um, just trying to buy some time. And at Spring Hill, oh, my gosh. I mean, it, it comes together in such a way. I mean, it, it's really Chancellorsville on paper. It's, it's two-thirds of the Army swung around. Schofield is oblivious to what's going on until it's too late. 
Um, his cavalry had been pushed back, so he was blind. And then, to, to put it in a nutshell, I mean, for so many years, it was John Bell Hood was on laudanum. Well, there's no evidence of that. There's not a shred of evidence. I don't believe Hood was taking laudanum of any sort. Um, I operate in the sphere as a, as a writer and a historian that if there's not evidence of it, it's our responsibility not to even suggest it. Because you get into the land of conjecture, and for so many people, conjecture becomes reality. So what happens at Spring Hill is a colossal series of, of errors by the Confederate high command that involve about six or seven commanders. You could not have written a script. But, I, Jerry, they were human beings, and that's what's forgotten. You know, they, they weren't immortal, and they were tired. And Hood and A.P. Stewart and Frank Cheatham and Nathan Bedford Forrest, they all made mistakes that night, which allowed the Federal Army, once Schofield figured out, oh, good Lord, you know, I'm, I'm almost cut off, if not cut off, and he begins to withdraw. But the Confederates didn't have the road blocked, and Schofield pushed that first division through. And so he pushed the second division through, and third and the fourth and the fifth, and he got away. It is one of the most incredible blunders of the war, but there wasn't anything nefarious going on. It was just a series of... It would almost... I've described this to groups before. It would almost be dark comedy if it were not so unbelievably tragic the next day because so many men would pay for the mistakes of Spring Hill. Yeah, if, if the Confederates had closed that escape road that the Union Army used that night, uh, then perhaps you would have had a mass surrender like Harper's Ferry. Uh, it, it would not have, and, and you wouldn't have had the uh, irrational behavior that follows the next day uh, at, at Franklin. So many people have over the years alleged the only way Hood could have let this happen, let his army practically line the road and watch the Union troops parade and review past them, uh, not, not quite literally that way, but close enough that the Union Army could march out this one escape route unmolested uh, and, and survive the trap, that, that Hood must have been uh, incapacitated in some way. Th there's almost a cottage industry growing up now. There's a couple new books about Hood in the last year or so. Uh, and I don't think any of them argue the, the traditional, oh, he was drugged or, oh, he was uh, duped in some way. They're, they're all, uh, I think your position is, is becoming the majority one, that uh, it's just the fog of war. These things happened. Uh, well, I, I hope so, because I think that's the truth. I don't think there was anything going on other than a series of terrible mistakes. Um, and, and one of the things that I've always found interesting about Spring Hill, and, and, I, and I, let me preface this by saying, I am not a John Bell Hood supporter. I simply wanted balance. I did not believe that Hood deserved the treatment that he had gotten, which was so different than just about every other Army commander, maybe with the exception of Bragg and Burnside. I mean, he was just castigated as, any, as everything but, you, know, you name it. I mean, he was called every name in the book. And, you know, it's, it, on that night, he issues orders to his subordinate officers, particularly A.P. Stewart and Frank Cheatham, the latter being, I think, very culpable for the mistakes, and not because Cheatham was doing anything, you know, 
wrong other than he was making errors. But I always thought it interesting that, well, was Robert E. Lee supposed to drag Richard Ewell up to the top of Culp's Hill? Was that his job? No. He gave the orders, and, and Ewell didn't perform well, and, and neither did James Longstreet, in my opinion. That doesn't mean that they're completely at fault. Robert E. Lee is ultimately the commander. But if you are a commanding general and you have to run around dragging your subordinates by the back of their pants to accomplish their mission, then you have a dysfunctional army. And Hood gave very clear orders that night. Um, one of the biggest mistakes at Spring Hill, and I know people have, I've been jumped about this for years, but I'm always you know, willing to confront you know, that with facts, What's the job of the cavalry? They're, they're the scouts. Job, eyes and ears. Yes. Tell you what the enemy's doing. Well, funny, on the night of November 29, 1864, Nathan Bedford Forrest never gave the slightest indication to John Bell Hood the entire Yankee army was moving up the road. So what was Forrest doing? Well, I think he was doing what a lot of people were doing, which was not much. They never thought 25,000 troops would march 30 miles under cover of darkness right past their own army. It was unfathomable that they would actually do it. And I think that's where one of the, that's one of the episodes, one of the angles of Spring Hill that I think is so easily forgotten. Armies didn't do this, but they did that night. And there was hell to pay the next day. Um, so... It's a series of blunders. I don't... If I were... I've said to groups for three years, if, if you were Hood, imagine how you'd feel in the morning. You know, it's an interesting point about Forrest not reporting that these people are going past him, that at some level, there are a number of other battles where you find the commanding general's not informed about something obvious. And my thought train on that is, if you're at the front, you're a regimental commander you don't send a courier back every time something happens in front of you, uh, especially if it's something obvious that the whole army can see. Like Lee or Hood, in this case, doesn't need 40 regimental couriers coming back saying the army's, the Yankee army's going. So each one at the front says, oh, well, this is an obvious thing. Someone else is reporting this. I'm not going to clog the channels with yet another redundant report. So nobody reports it. I mean, whose right. responsibility is it? I, it, it, it? The only way to explain how something so obvious can happen is that it's a bureaucracy. And it's not any one person's responsibility to report the obvious. Uh, and yet, if no one does it, it doesn't get reported. For many years, I have compared Spring Hill in, in, a, in, a, in, in some ways to the days leading up to the onset of the Battle of the Bulge. Mm-hmm. There were GIs on the line, Americans and British, who suspected something was up. You know, guys on the line have a gut hunch something's not right. Right. The problem, nobody was listening. Nobody on any command level, all the way to the top, ever envisioned that the Germans would launch an attack like that at that stage of the war at that time of year. And there were warning signs all over Spring Hill on November 29, 1864. There was was noise. This wasn't a silent movement. Now, they were trying to be quiet. Right. You you, you can't keep 25,000 men... Completely in their quiet. wagons and horses, sure. And the horses. I mean, you can't keep the mules and the horses quiet. They're going to make sound. And there were guys that knew or had a suspicion something wasn't right, but they didn't 
No. See, most of these guys are three to 500 yards off the road, so it's not like they're sitting right next to it. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of guys, they go into bivouac to go to sleep. Those yeah. who were awake, they had a sense something was up, but who thought 25,000 yeah. <laughs> men six miles long would be marching right in front of them? And then they found out in the morning, yeah, they actually had. Wow. So... The Northern Army gets away, lives to fight another day, uh, retreats back further north toward Nashville, uh, decides to make a stand, or at least a rearguard stand initially, but but some kind of stand uh, at the town of Franklin. And uh, the next day, Hood's Army catches up, and this gives us a good point to take another short break and come back and uh, talk in our last segment about what happened at Franklin. Uh, just give our listeners a taste and encourage them to get uh, more copies of For Cause and For Country by Eric Jacobson. He is our guest today. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Eric Jacobson, historian and chief operating officer of the Battle of Franklin Trust and author of For Cause and For Country, a study of the affair at Spring Hill and the Battle of Franklin. We talked in our last segment about the affair at Spring Hill, uh, affair rather than battle, the curious affair of the 
army that didn't shoot in the night as the Union Army walked away through the trap set by John Bell Hood and his men. The next day, Hood's army catches up to the Union troops, and we have uh, what has been described as the, the Pickett's Charge of the West, a, a, uh, a scene of unsurpassed drama. Um, l- let me ask the question this way. Uh, if visitors visit the uh, the the scene at Franklin the 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 Carnton and the uh, uh, the plantation and the the battlefield uh, what will they see and what should they look for? Um. Well, the 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 houses Carter House and Carnton, of course, are are you know beautiful and there's a good bit of ground around each. There are I guess about two hundred and fifty two hundred and sixty acres of the battlefield that are preserved. Um, open space that you can get a great vantage, for example, of, of what Hood saw from Winstead Hill, sort of overlooking the Harpeth Valley. Um, obviously, looks a little different today with all the development, but but there's a lot to see. I mean, you can really you can really get a sense of what was going on, and, and even as far as the development. Um, one of the strange things about Franklin is, even though the battlefield was covered in many places much of the terrain, so, so much of the development was 50, 60 years ago that the terrain wasn't scarped or flattened out, so you have, the terrain retains its integrity, I guess is what I'm trying to say, but <laughs> you can certainly get a sense for the action both in the middle and on the east side of the field at the two respective homes. The the shorthand version that, that a lot of people think they know about the Battle of Franklin is that Hood shows up sees the Yankees dug in, he's angry at his troops because they didn't catch the the Northern Army the night before, so he hurls them into uh, just irrational frontal assaults against fortified positions. Uh, troops die by the thousands, the generals die by the dozens, and it's just uh, it's just unmitigated bloodshed. Is Is that the essence of the story, or what really happened? Well, it's the essence of the story that many people propagated for years, but I think they're wrong. Um, I don't think the facts, again, going back to facts, not not mm-hmm. just not emotions, but what the facts show is that Franklin, like other battles, was the result of circumstances. The only reason the Federal Army stopped in Franklin was because they couldn't get across the river. So John Schofield is desperately trying to get the bridges passable to evacuate. He puts up a, or has a defensive front constructed on the south edge of town, but he's just trying to buy some time. His plan was to evacuate at 6. John Bell Hood correctly surmised that Schofield would never stop until he got to Nashville. Well, he arrives at Franklin to find out that, well, Schofield has stopped, but because of circumstances. And so Hood has, when he arrives, 12.30, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, he's looking at three to four hours of daylight. And this is where I use, I, I, I love to use Gettysburg with, the, with, with so many groups, just sometimes the, the casual visitors, because everyone's heard of Gettysburg. Everyone's heard of Pickett's Charge. When you look at Lee's decisions, was Lee ever caught? Was, was Lee punishing his troops? Was Lee angry? You know, 
people don't look at it like that. And I think that I understand why Lee did what he did. He goes into Pennsylvania. He's been so close on two days, and he believes that they'll break. But more importantly, he can't just turn around. He can't just leave. He can't just leave. He can't walk away from Pennsylvania. You've come all this way. And I think for Hood, there, there's some of that, that with Spring Hill fresh on his mind. And is he angry? I don't know that he's angry. There's no factual evidence of that. Is he frustrated? Yeah, I think he's frustrated. I think a lot of guys are frustrated. But I'm going to throw something else out. I think in the Southern Army, there is a sense of fatalism. What I mean by this is two-thirds of the Southern Army is absent without leave by the stage of the war. The guys who were left were your hardcore fighters. When they said they were willing to die, they meant it. It's why the federal troops considered them such a dangerous opponent. When you had men in the ranks that day like Walter Rohrer of the 20th Mississippi who said that he and his fellow soldiers were noble martyrs in a holy cause, you're dealing with a group of men who are very, very dangerous. And all of them knew, even if they didn't know the details, they knew what had happened at Spring Hill. And they knew when they got to Franklin, the enemy was right in front of them. And they were back in Tennessee. And Nashville was just up the road. And I think Hood knows that as much as anyone. A Mississippian would later write that it was better to be defeated in a blaze of glory than die a coward. See, this is where I think the Army of Tennessee is so different than the Army in Northern Virginia, and, and the federal troops are different as well. It's a different mindset out here. Mm -hmm. The war had been incredibly savage. Shiloh, Murfreesboro, Perryville, Chickamauga, Chattanooga, Atlanta. One just brawl after another. And Franklin, I think in some ways, Franklin, most people had a sense that this is where it was going to be decided. And Hood believed, and he wrote this, and, and several subordinates, not named Pat Claiborne or Nathan Bedford Forrest, said that Hood told them that afternoon that this was their last opportunity. This was it. If they had any chance of taking Nashville, they had to destroy Schofield. And so they advanced that afternoon at 4 p.m., and as a good friend of mine said, they, they marched into the pages of immortality. And to bring this full circle, that's why I started writing. Because I wanted people to understand that what happened here wasn't maybe what they had heard, that it was high drama late in the war, deep convictions on both sides, and circumstances just brought them together that afternoon at Franklin. And then at 4 o'clock, the, uh, the gods of war were unleashed one last time between these two armies, at least in this fashion. Nashville was just a mop-up two weeks later. The Army of Tennessee died at Franklin, but many of those men died as Walter Rohrer himself said, just the way they wanted to. And there so, were a lot of guys in blue that afternoon who were perfectly willing to send them right on their way. The Again, I, the impression I had, knowing less about the battle, was that it was you know, a one-sided 
uh, you know, almost a turkey shoot for, for the Union troops uh, fully dug in, shooting at the Confederates coming across an open field. But you point out there were tactical options. There were places, first of all, where the Confederates did break into the Union line, but there were flanks to the Union position. It, it didn't have to be just a head-on attack. It didn't have to be. Um, Hood um, does not decide to simply go with a flanking option only. He really launches sort of a pincher movement, infantry assault with cavalry, but he's not using all of his cavalry. He split it. Um, I think his use of the cavalry at, at Franklin is not good. Not that I think Forrest's, you know, desire to just have another flanking maneuver is the best option, but the way the hood orchestrates it, I don't think. But that's that's hindsight. You know, that's that's that 2020 um, stuff. I, I just don't think that he used it as, as best that he could. But the Confederates come so close. They gash a massive hole in the middle of the federal position, and it is only because, in in my third book, which is about three U.S. units that fight at Franklin called Baptism of Fire, it is only because of the stand of those those new guys, and I don't know how new guys could stand up to, you know, these shock troops in the Confederate Army, but they did, and they bought a few precious moments for Emerson Updike to get his brigade into the fray. Um. But the Confederates, and ultimately it's why the casualty uh, numbers are so staggering, because so many Southern troops who achieved initial success found themselves pinned into the most unbelievable, hellish area, and they were just shot down in waves. And that's the dark, that's the dark, tragic side of Franklin. This is what the war had become. Once the U.S. Army gained the upper hand at Franklin, they just started laying waste to the Southern Army. It, it shocked the veterans, the guys who survived it on both sides. Um, this is where you'll, you can t- look at places like Okinawa and Iwo Jima. I mean, it, it, the veterans, they couldn't believe the scope of the combat there, and you see some of that at places like Franklin. It takes a lot to shock a guy who's been in it for three years. Well, one of the things that stands out about the battle is the, the carnage among the the Confederate officer corps, uh, that this is really the, the, this is the last example of that leading from the front uh, because there's, there's nobody left to lead when they're done. Uh, how many generals were, were casualties that day? Well, there were six who were killed. Um, there are 15 killed, wounded, or captured. But it's so, the lead from the front. I they, think that men like Patrick Claiborne knew exactly what they were getting into. Frankly, Claiborne had no business being where he was as a division commander. But I think that he, like a lot of his men, were willing to sacrifice their lives for this idea of independence. He had given a speech just a month before Franklin where he said, if his cause in which I believe is doomed to fail, I hope I shall fall with it. That's the fatalism I mentioned. Right. Well, there certainly is a sense of that. One of the things that I, I found interesting about the book, uh, your book on this battle, especially given how many casualties there are, is in your description of uh, you know the ultimate uh, consequence of battle, of people being killed, there are some writers who 
engage in what I would consider excessive uh, uh, what's the, excessive detail uh, that that starts to make you question what the author's doing here. Um, you don't do that. Uh, it, it, as I was reading this book, I, I thought these the events are shocking enough, and you, you describe how people are, are maimed and killed, but in a, in a sufficiently gory way to to appropriately shock the reader, and then move on and not dwell on it or uh, uh, even take any any interest in it. Uh, it's hard to put a finger on it, but there are there are books that that strike me as Civil War pornography that just delight in the battlefield casualties, and uh, and there are others that sanitize it and say nothing about it, which is going the other swing of the pendulum. And again, I, I thought this book found an appropriate middle ground. Was that something you thought about as you were writing? Oh, very much. Um, I, I more than anything, I wanted the book to be readable. As someone who reads nonfiction almost exclusively, I have read those books that you know are mind-numbing, mm-hmm. um, and and there's so much good material, but it's just so laden with so much other stuff, and the casual reader isn't like the person writing the book, so they don't want all the detail, um, and and they also don't want to be, if I can you know be so bold, they don't want to be bludgeoned to death. Exactly. And yes. so, Rich, who He's my co-author. I wrote the book, but see, Rich is like a sounding board for me. Um, we redacted sections. You know, we pulled... There's, there's only so many ways that you can say someone gets shot in the neck and they bleed to death. You don't need to go into the ridiculous details of it all the time. Um, and then actually what you're saying is the best compliment that I've had through the years about the book is that it strikes a, a nice balance and that it reads well. And... I didn't know what people would think of it. Um, I, I'm sadly, I'm sure I'll never write another book quite like this. <laughs> I, I feel like the band that sold 10 million albums, and I'm never going to do it again. But I don't really care. I, I, I got the book out that I wanted, and if it's on a shelf somewhere 50 or 75 years from now, and someone pulls it off and reads it and says, "You know, wow, this this guy wrote a great story," and this is this is just a great. That that's what I wanted. I wanted the men to have their due. Well, I, I think wanted you've... John Bell Hood to have some balance, and I wanted the Federal Army to finally get some credit because it wasn't just a Confederate story. You know, the true, Federal true. Army. The Federal Army marched that night in an incredibly ballsy move right up that road. They set up the defensive line. They hung together when the battle was. This ain't Pickett's Charge, you know, where 150 guys in Armistead get over the angle. You know, the Federal Army's getting its face caved in, and somehow they hang on. And and They they do. As as Pickett said uh, at at Gettysburg, I think the Yankees had something to do with it. Yeah, that's exactly right. But unfortunately, Eric, I have to interrupt you because we're out of time, as always happens too soon. But I appreciate you uh, joining me on the show. Uh, I very much enjoyed the book. Listeners, you will want to get a copy of For Cause and Country, A Study of the Affair at Spring Hill and the Battle of Franklin by Eric A. Jacobson and give credit to the co-author Richard A. Rupp. Uh, Eric, thanks for, for being on the show and uh, I hope I'll get down to Franklin and get a chance to talk with you sometime. 
Appreciate it. Thanks, Jerry. And listeners, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.